agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government has the government love. The government has the government love. The government Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by my conservative counterpart, Cleveland area attorney and defender of freedom, Jay Carson. Hey, good morning, Mike. Hey, Jay, how are you doing this morning? Well, as the the first lady might say, I'm as uh, unique as a Glenlivet and boiled haggis. Ooh, very, um, uh, <laughs> very, but, uh, very nice. I like that one. Uh, well, as usual, we have an awful lot to talk about. You know, it's strange every Monday or Tuesday, or sometimes even by Wednesday. I think, geez, I don't know what we're going to have to talk about. And then, sure enough, the world provides, uh, unfortunately or not, more than enough material. For us, And this week, we're going to be talking about some Biden administration uh, abortion guidance and Texas's lawsuit about that, uh, the news about the inflation and the economy, uh, some, some update, I guess, sort of on, on COVID and uh, Joe Manchin. Joe Manchin is going to come into the conversation, I'm sure, because, well, uh, yeah, he will. Uh, the Brittany, uh, the Brittany Griner trial, uh, maybe some more stuff, depending on how much time we have. But there is a lot to talk about, and we are going to be getting to that starting in just one second. Okay, Jay, so we open with the latest in the Biden administration's efforts to provide women with access to abortion services in the wake of the Dobbs decision and the you know ever more restrictive and now constitutional state abortion bans. On Monday, July 11th, Secretary of Health and Human Services Xavier Becerra emailed a guidance letter to healthcare providers across the country concerning something called the Emergency Medical Treatment and Active Labor Act, or EMTALA, I guess you'd pronounce it. Uh, this is a federal law that was enacted by Congress in 1986 that requires Medicare participating hospitals to provide stabilizing medical treatment to patients. And as Secretary Becerra put it in the guidance memo, if a physician believes that a pregnant patient presenting at an emergency department, including certain labor and delivery departments, is experiencing an emergency medical condition as defined by EMTALA, and that abortion and that abortion is the stabilizing treatment necessary to resolve that condition, the physician must provide that treatment. And when a state law prohibits abortion and does not include an exception for the life and health of the pregnant person or draws the exception more narrowly than Amtala's emergency medical condition definition, that state law is preempted. And as for, you know, what constitutes an emergency medical condition under the legislation? Well, the statute includes placing the health of the individual or with respect to a pregnant woman, the health of the woman or her unborn child in serious jeopardy, as well as serious impairments to bodily functions. And the secretary also reminded physicians that this law provides them legal protection if an abortion performed based on these considerations violates state law or hospital policies. And he reminded providers that penalties for violating EMTALA include civil monetary penalties and may also include exclusion from Medicare. And I should point out this, that's an important component is that this only applies to hospitals that or providers that accept Medicare, which is pretty much, you know, everyone. So, um, 
And Texas, uh, in response, brought suit against the federal government with the state's attorney general arguing that this guidance or so-called guidance, he would say, is an attempt by the administration to, in the words of the suit, use federal law to transform every emergency room in the country into a walk-in abortion clinic. And that Antala does not and never has given the federal government the authority to compel health care providers to provide abortions. Now, the case will first be heard by Judge James Hendricks, who's a Trump appointee. And if there's going to be any sort of uh, appeal of a decision or an injunction, it would go to the Fifth Circuit, which is generally considered to be the most conservative federal appeals court. So that's kind of the background on this. Jay, what are your uh, initial thoughts on all of this, which I'm sure we'll be coming back to when we hear rulings uh, along the way? So my my initial thoughts. Um this goes back to what we've said a couple times in the last couple of weeks and, and uh, quoting Justice Scalia is that Congress does not hide elephants in mouse holes. Uh, and uh, uh, Secretary Becerra seems to be saying that uh, Congress has hidden the elephant of abortion legalization uh, in the mouse hole of the um, Mtala. Can you explain uh, that? I don't, I, I don't uh, because here's here's I guess what I'm struggling I, uh, to understand about that. I kind of thought that might be your response, but Mtala specifically refers to abortions, and it also gives lists specific guidelines about what an emergency medical condition is. So it seems to me nothing's being hidden here. The legislation specifically references abortion several times, and so how is this hiding anything? Well, I, mean, I guess uh, to the extent that they it does provide an actual uh, uh, saying abortion, then I, I would suppose it, it does not. Uh, that that changes the equation a little bit. And then you get into, well, uh, the federal preemption question. Um, and and again, I, I don't know. I don't know where that that one lands, if you will. Um, my concern would be that. The way the guidance is written, um, there seems to be an awful lot of discretion that is afforded to the the physician and then uh, consequently to the the Department of Health and Human Services uh, to make these these decisions. Um, and and that to me seems to be sort of a, a backdoor uh, to try to um, undo state state laws that have been been duly passed except except and, and i'm should, not i'm not positive that the the federal government has the authority to do that well except this is not a, this couldn't be an attempt to undo because this legislation was passed in 1986 right i mean this yeah. is 30 some years ago and, and also i mean there are some pretty clear restrictions or, or sorry definitional restrictions on what constitutes both an emergency medical condition and what constitutes stabilizing and so i mean right and and i was i was going to mention that that statute did include the the more limited health language right the impaired substantial bodily function right and that that kind of um, reminded me of our conversation last week when you said well if there's no specific definition of this then it could be like oh well someone could experience emotional distress and that's yes. a, yeah yeah and this this is how, this does have the, the tighter definition so i right. think there's less less concern there um the piece that I guess maybe uh, troubled me the most um, in the the uh, guidance, and uh, you can pull up the letter because you sent me the letter and I read it myself, um, is is the the line where um, 
uh, Secretary Bracera says um, the process is complaint driven. Right. Um, well, well, that would make sense, right? I mean, because if there's no way to know if there's a violation in some, unless someone sure. makes a complaint, right? So, sure, sure. Well, no, it's 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 a true statement, obviously. Uh-huh. Um, but but reminding um, that the 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 process is complaint driven. Um, there's there's a little bit of a more than a little bit of an implicit threat there. Can you explain right. that to me? I'm not. I'm not sure yeah, exactly. Because you're, here's the thing: you you don't. If if you go and you complain, who are you going to complain to? Oh, the federal government. Yes, Secretary HHS. Becerra. Yeah, HHS. Yeah. Um, and and uh, uh, Becerra, I believe, would be receptive to your complaint. As, as I would hope, as I would hope, any administration official would be if there's an allegation that federal law is being violated. Well, I would say if there's an allegation that federal law is being violated uh, and there are facts to substantiate that federal law is sure, being violated. Of course. Yeah, absolutely. I, and, and my my concern uh, would be there is a essentially a, a chilling effect, if you will. Right. That there is. Listen, if, if you if a complaint's brought against you, that that may, in fact, be game over. Right. Well, not necessarily. I mean, that that's assuming that's assuming a system that's already reached certain conclusions and will not be fair and impartial. That's what I'm assuming. Well, if so, I guess the problem here. <laughs> so, well, let me I mean, let me stop on, you there, Jay. On, let, well, past, well, well, let me stop on, you there. If we're state policies, right? I mean, if, I, that's that would be my. If we're assuming that the federal government will not act in good faith in adjudicating these cases, then 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 it's. And what's the point of any of this? If you say you have so little faith in the yeah. federal government, I mean, so then why don't we just um, do away with the federal government and let Texas be its own country? I mean, really, that's well, I, that's I, not I, a good would, argument. Be, if you wanted to say let's let's do away with the federal government being in charge of these administrative proceedings, which will determine um, who would be uh, in charge of them. I mean, uh, this is this is the federal course. law. Well, the courts, of course, will will come into this. Certainly, I mean, they already are. But I mean, there's a clear statute that was written thirty something years ago that is on point and applies. And the secretary is just saying, "Hey, there's this statute, and of course, you don't have to follow it. But if you are a Medicare recipient, this was part of the deal. This is not some new thing. This is just something that we're reminding you of. And also, I should point out that you know the vast majority." of abortions are actually not done under anything approaching uh, emergency conditions. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's tough to get data, good data on this, but like over 90% of abortions from the best data I could find are non-emergency. And, you know, you mentioned chilling effect and I agree. That's, that's of course the argument that a lot of, uh, a lot of providers are concerned about with a lot of these state laws saying, Hey, what if, you know, there's this state and most states, all states, as far as far as I'm aware, have an exception for life of the mother. But the concern is, well, how how long do I have to wait? Do I have to wait so long where it's incontrovertible that the mother might die and therefore there could that could lead to more deaths? And, and so that would have a chilling effect in the other way is what the proponents of uh, reproductive choice are concerned about. And I think rightly so. Right. Right. But the, right. But those are two different. Those are two different statutes, two different problems, right? Sure. I agree. There can be a chilling effect either way. Yeah. Um, but if but if you're asking me, uh, what do I think about the the guidance letter? 
I, I think that's a that's a chilling effect uh, in in terms of, um, you know, let's let's say uh, first of all, again, I, and I I can I understand how uh, Texas sees this as a walk-in uh, abortion on demand, right? Because can how you do explain you, that to me? Because I don't I don't do, see yeah, that. How, so I, I mean, how do you police something like this, right? Um, someone, uh, let's, let's say someone, um, comes in for an abortion. Let's say they are not that far along, right? But the, 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 uh, abortion would still violate Texas law. Uh, let's suppose they're brought in by someone who is an abortion activist. And they say, listen, uh, uh, physician who we would assume uh, performs abortions or routinely did perform abortions. Uh, this person needs an abortion uh, uh, for her her health or to pre- uh, preserve substantial bodily function. Um, what what will that doctor say? That doctor would. In my sense he would say, "I agree." No, not at all. I, I I I fundamentally disagree with you on that. I think that doctor would say, "Well, let me take a look at the patient." I think any doctor would say that, and assuming otherwise, I think is just really kind of doing a disservice to the doctors in general. And so I, I disagree with that. I think, I think doctors, I mean, there are certainly shady doctors, like there are shady attorneys and shady politicians, plenty sure. of those. Yes. But I think the vast majority of, of physicians, especially emergency, well, not especially, but, and this is the case of emergency physicians. Emergency departments. No, I, I not, that's that's yeah. something different too. Yeah. But, that, but that's, this is specifically focused on these conditions. So in other words, you can't come in to a regular hospital and just, you know, non-emergency and just say, oh, I'm pregnant. I'd like an abortion. And, oh, this is an emergency. And it's like the doctor's going to say, oh, Yes. Okay. I'm just going to accept that it is, and I will abort your fetus. That's not how. That's not how this would work in the real world. It's just. It's just wrong, and that's why I think Texas's contention is just incredibly wrong, a uh, hyperbolic, uh, you know, statement. And I get why they're making it because Texas, being Texas, they do everything big in Texas, including you know, big on truth, and this is one of those. So I, I'd be interested in in uh, learning more on how uh, emergency department is defined uh, either by the statute or or in Texas law or in both. Um, and that's that's something I uh, frankly did not get in the, pre- the preparation to do, because I think that's that would be significant. Right? Explain explain what you mean. Well, again, if if you have someone who is a uh, again, not in the the typical ER that you're thinking of. Right. When you, we, you, you and I say emergency department, we figure. That is the place uh, at the hospital or sometimes standalone uh, uh, associated with a hospital where you go in, where you, you know, whatever, have have, you know, you're you're having chest pains or you just sprained your ankle or, or whatever. But you need immediate attention. Um, if that definition could be uh, broadly applied. Well, no, it, it's a very specific definition. And I guess that's, that's, the, my, it says, that's my question. Uh, the term hospital includes a critical access hospital as defined in Section 1395X of this title and a rural emergency hospital as defined in Section 1395X, okay. uh, right. second section of this title. So, I mean, well, these, you're, these you're definitions. You're me. I'm, I'm, getting, I'm getting more comfortable with this then. Yeah. So, I mean, what I, I guess what I'm saying here is that, uh, is that this is certainly uh, – I can understand how somebody who is a pro-life activist would read the guidance letter as a very heavy-handed threat. 
I, I agree yeah. with you. I get that. Now, I, I'm not a pro-life activist, but no, that's why I read but, it. Yeah, but, but even more so a pro-life activist. But upon thinking about reading the, you know, reading the actual legislation as well as the letter like you did, you know, it, it seems to me that this is something that certainly will have some effects on the margin. But I don't think is any sort of drastic or any sort of federal overreach at all. And I don't even think the preemption question is really a question in that. I mean, we all know that Congress could. Well, not we all know, but most people yeah. would agree yeah, that, that Congress could essentially pass legislation that would put in place all sorts of rules on uh, on abortion for uh, Medicaid participating hospitals, and that would preempt state law there. And of course, the states would be free to say, well, we're just simply not going to accept Medicaid. Now, there's I think there's another argument saying that, well, could Congress find some other sort of interstate commerce type of justification for doing that. And they, they, they could. That would be a little more, I think, constitutionally questionable. They'll still, I think, well within a safe zone. No, I think, I think there's an argument there. Yeah. Well, I mean, there, there's yeah. more of an argument than it is for Medicaid participating hospitals is what yeah, I'm no, saying. I think, yeah, I think the, the spending power argument is easier to make and win yeah. than the Commerce Clause argument. Even, even before the Fifth Circuit. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, that said, I, I don't know that the uh, spending uh power argument is is a slam dunk right i I guess i'd need to think about that some more no i mean Um, i I wouldn't be surprised it seems to me that well can you can you can you uh can the federal government through its spending compel actions that would violate a state's criminal law well hmm. I, i think that's i think that's a i think that's a live question well, yeah, I see. I see. I see. Issue. I think. I, I think. I think that's the look. I think it's a good argument, and I think they. They. There's a strong likelihood. If 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 I if I were a betting man, I would say uh, that the the spending power preemption argument would win. I but think, I'm saying it's not a slam dunk. No, yeah, I, I agree. I think it would win narrowly. I I would expect that if this this sort of, well, I would expect that if this case in particular came to the the Supreme Court, it would probably be like I would guess something like a a five four six three in in favor of the uh, administration uh, ruling being you know. But but yeah, definitely not. I, I wouldn't expect this to be anything any sort of unanimous thing. Uh, Justice Thomas would pull something interesting out of his hat, and Sam Alito would sign on to it because that's what they do. And you know, anyway. But but yeah. So yeah, there is a related thing I wanted to. Uh, get into as well and ask you about. Uh, And that is that also this last week, the Biden administration issued guidance to retail pharmacies uh, telling them. Can I I throw in one? Yeah, please do. Yeah. yeah. So, but, but I I just want to make sure my point is understood about the, the, the point of, of noting the complaint driven process. Okay. Yeah. We kind of dropped that a little bit. So yeah. To me, to me, the, what, uh, how I read that is, We'll be watching you. And, See, I read that just the opposite. And you don't, and you don't in, in 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 the real world, it's not a matter even so much of, uh, oh, hey, look, the federal government investigated me and brought charges against me, um, but I was exonerated. Once the federal government brings charges against you, you're done. As a practical matter, always. I, I would say typically, yeah. And there's a difference. Like there's there's a difference, right? Between how, how would your how would your well, lawyer me, respond well, if they found out that 
the federal government is uh, is investigating you or something or other. Well, there's the, let's make some distinctions here, Jay. There's a distinction between investigating and then bringing charges and then being convicted of those charges. All all those things. Now, you're, I I don't imagine you're saying that the federal government should not investigate reasonable allegations that federal law is being violated. You're not suggesting that. Not at all. Okay. So I guess I'm I'm struggling to understand what what you're what you're suggesting because it seems to me that complaint driven process is just the opposite. If it's we're watching you, that would be well. This is going to be a, a you know a regulatory a sort of we're going to be on site. We're going to station agents in all these emergency rooms. That no, would no, be no. we're there's watching always, you. There's always under, understand. I, I guess my let me put it this way: uh, the the China's cultural revolution. Oh God! Was a complaint-driven process. Oh, are you really going to make this? You're going to really? Make, oh, yes. oh, you're not going to make a China. No, I mean, analogy. I'm saying, I'm saying, this is how how you know it, it, there are activists out there who will make the complaint. And what once else the would drive is made that that is a has a substantial chilling effect? What else would drive the Regardless process? The I guess. I, I mean, I, I, I'm I'm struggling to understand how the process would work. If somebody did not file a complaint, how else could this process work? No, I I agree. That's how the the process would work. But I'm saying uh, Becerra's uh, reminding people of that, his use of of how that that (laughs) the phrasing in the letter. I see. um, Okay, is what's heavy. I see. Just reminding people of their rights under the law is very heavy handed. Well, it's not reminding people of their rights under the law, right? It's reminding positions that, you know, if someone complains about you, we're going to be on it. Whether as, that complaint's valid as I would expect they would. I mean, I, I would hope that if I complained to the federal government and had a reasonable allegation that law was being violated, that they would be on it. Let's OK, let me let me let me do a hypothetical. Real quick. OK, OK. Let's say uh, uh, President Trump uh, had rightfully won the 2020 election. OK. And he is now the president and it is now Trump's. Um, uh, Secretary of HHS, who is in there, and there is a federal law that says um, uh, something to the effect of "you shall not um, provide abortions under certain circumstances." Uh, it's an HHH regulation, and uh, this is a complaint-driven process. Would would you not consider that to be a chilling effect, or wouldn't physicians feel that that to be a chilling effect? That if someone complains about them. Um, they're going to be in the government's crosshairs. And would you have the faith that a Trump uh, HHS uh, would not be so politicized as to uh, essentially make the the investigation uh, the conclusion? Well, that, those are, th- th- yeah, those are two separate questions. And I guess as to the first one, I see your point. Uh, the letter could have gone out and would have would have had the same practical effect if that complaint-driven process phrase hadn't been used. And so, yeah, I see what you're saying, and I the, the agree. Left, I mean, thrives on cancel culture. That's their weapon. Well, let's, let's hold on. Can, can see, it. I was with you, and then you had to take it one step further. That's uh, um, Okay. So let's back up to the point where I was actually with you before you okay. head off into cancel culture. Um, I think you're right that this was, I think we're just maybe using different terminology. You see it as a chilling effect. 
And I see it as just a, a reminder of the law and that the, the federal law cannot be that, that if you try, attempt to subvert federal law, there may, in fact, be consequences. You see that as, as chilling and negative, And I see that as, as, you know, kind of more or less neutral. But I get where you're coming from on that, certainly. OK. So it's not that I don't under, understand you on that. So, OK. Now, the other thing I wanted to mention, uh, kind of related to this, right, is the Biden administration also issued guidance to those uh, pharmacies across the country saying, hey, you can't refuse to fill prescriptions for abortion pills or any other drugs that you think, as a pharmacist, may be used off-label to end a pregnancy. And the administration here argues that pharmacies that receive federal funding, which is basically any pharmacy that has Medicare, you know, so all the pharmacies, right, that this would be, in fact, a violation of federal civil rights laws, the treating pregnant people or the, based on pregnancy conditions, from what I understand. Uh, so, you know, we talked about this in a way, sort of, I thought, last week. Right. And I mentioned just over half of all abortions are medical and not surgical. So this is kind of a big deal. Um, And Jay, you mentioned last time women seeking an abortion could presumably just kind of connect with an out of state uh, telehealth provider, get a prescription and terminate their uh, pregnancy. And under this guidance, well, they could get that out of state prescription and just take it to their local whatever Walgreens or CVS in any state. And that would make it much easier for them to do. And I guess presumably a state could ban all out of state telehealth services, but it couldn't do it just for, you know, certain types. In other words, it seems to me like this is a pretty big, I won't use the term loophole doesn't seem correct, but it seems to me that this guidance isn't unreasonable, uh, but I wanted to get your take on it. Um, you know, I guess I, I again, what, what troubles me most about this, about both of these, these actions, right, is the sense of um, we're, in, instead of saying, listen, uh, the court has said this, this goes to the states, let's fight this out in the states, um, it seems to be a, an attempt to use federal law to um, reverse that outcome or to ignore that outcome. But federal law uh, preempts state law. To resist, right? Yeah. Yeah, and no, so if there um, are federal laws on the books that require in certain, certain instances. Things, yeah. yeah. And so I don't think this is, I mean, like we talked about before, Congress could pass legislation that would, you know, uh, really liberalize, could give kind of the entire country, say, California, California or, or I don't know, Massachusetts's rules on, on abortion. And so to me, this isn't a question of trying to, of, of of Congress or the administration, sorry, the administration doing anything that's outside of the law. They're just using pre-existing federal laws to attempt to preserve the rights of women that are enshrined in federal law, at least, if not the Constitution after the Dobbs decision, uh, to uh, access to uh, abortion services. And I guess you see so, that, I don't think you disagree with me so much, but you see that as a much more ominous sort of thing, maybe. I do. I, I okay. think that's. I think that's more, more the way I'm looking at it. Is is one. This is an attempt to um, use sort of agency authority um, to to legislate uh, undercover, right? Um, and I, I don't know as far as the the law, as far as a what a, a, a pharmacist's duty is, uh, if they think a drug would be used for something other than what it's being prescribed for. Right. Right. Um, 
I can tell you that there were plenty of pharmacy chains uh, uh, and, and pharmacists who have been charged in the opioid oh, yeah. uh, crisis. Um, and uh, recently, some of them have paid billions of dollars, even though what they would tell you is, look, we were just filling these prescriptions that were written for patients by uh, licensed doctors. Now, they have reporting um, requirements in some instances, and I think a lot of those lawsuits were about when you see unusual volume of certain controlled sure. substances, you need to report this. And in many cases, they just did not they, they did not do that. Sure. But I, I guess that's my. My uh, uh, issue is if look, if we are going to say. um you know what? What is the, going to be the the responsibility of a pharmacist? Is it a look? You got a prescription. I don't care what you do with it. Uh, I, if that's the rule, then I guess okay. Um, I see what you're saying. But that that ought that ought to be the rule, sort of across across Absolutely. the board. Absolutely. And, and you know, I, I feel like I have a pretty consistent. Now, and, would, now how about how about this? Okay. You, what about if if a uh, a state puts in an, a, a rule saying, listen, pharmacists, we'd like you to track all of the. Uh, abortifacient uh, drugs that uh, you dispense. Let us know how many you're doing and please report back if there's uh, someone who yeah. is a doctor who is prescribing a whole lot of these. I would expect that uh, as long as it didn't violate HIPAA or any other uh, patient privacy. Yeah, yeah no, you wouldn't have could, to name the patient. Yeah, right? I, I would expect that would be perfectly a, okay. Yeah. Here is here is a doctor who um, I'm trying to think some of the other uh, treatments that some of these drugs can be used for. Yeah. Um, uh, but but let's say, you know, he prescribes these abortion, uh, abortifacient drugs all the time for this, you know, non-abortion related condition. Um, we'd like to keep track of that. Um, I would expect that would be entirely, entirely within the state's purview. I mean, I'm, I might sure. not no, like no, okay, it. Okay. But yeah. that, that's that's first. That's first question. Yeah. Would it be legal? And I would sure. agree. I think it probably would be. Uh, would it be? Wouldn't you would you see that as as intrusive? And oh, sure. I mean, that's the state's yeah. all about being intrusive for better or worse. Right. I mean, you know, that's what the state does. That's what regulation is designed to intrude, to prevent or compel certain behaviors. You know, so, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I was going to say, I feel like I have a pretty strong record and a consistent record of being against the administrative state exceeding its statutory authority or its constitutional authority to do things. And it's just in these, even, even when it's kind of against my policy interests, right? Right. Right. No, and I hate to, I hate to see you blow the record. Well, that's why I think in these cases, I, I don't think I'm being inconsistent. I just, having read the legislation, I feel like this is, this is well within their legal purview, and it's not even really for me that much of a gray area. So uh, I, I'm not just basically what I'm saying is I'm not just arguing backwards from the from my preferred policy position here, which is well, something I, I, that, I get that. Yeah. So so yeah. A- any other any other thoughts on this before we move on to our next thing? No, let's move on. Okay, let's move on. All right. So moving on, let's talk a little bit about inflation. Of course, it. Uh, recent report continued to rise in June, according to the CPI report re- released late this week by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. The uh, month-to-month increase from May was 1%, with the sort of headline 12-month rate being 9.1%, which is, I'm sure everyone knows, the highest in 40-plus years. Uh, BLS characterized this increase as 
broad-based, with gasoline, shelter, and food being the largest contributors. Uh, gas prices are up nearly, uh, in, at least from last month, nearly 60% from a year ago, and food is up 10.4%. Now, there may be some relief on the horizon as gas prices across the country have actually gone down from those levels we saw in June. But on the other hand, there's Russia's continuing war in Ukraine and its effects on food and energy availability, as well as the you know, rise of uh, COVID BA5 and that potential effect on supply chains, especially if China ends up uh, mandating another widespread lockdown as China has been wont to do. Um, and the Federal Reserve, they're scheduled to meet later this month. It was clear already that they were going to raise rates by three quarters of a point, but now it's seen as possible that that rate hike might actually be as much as a full percentage point. So, Jay, uh, uh, what do you what, what do you take away from this? What do you make of this? Um, well, I mean, I, I don't know what else to say other than uh, I you know, told you so. Um, it's going to take a while for uh, this inflation to get uh, wrung out of the economy. Uh, and some of the best things we can do right now are uh, stop pumping, you know, don't pump more money into the economy. Uh, and uh, uh, let this let this uh, ride out and hope for a a soft landing. Um, I, I don't know that it's going to be a soft landing. My my guess is that you know next month we'll find out that we've been in a recession. Um, uh, so you know there there it is. I'm I'm not sure. Um, uh, you know what it's the inflation is in some ways it's kind of a disease of, of what you once you've gotten it right you kind of have to ride it out it's not just something that you can turn around overnight uh especially when it's it's related to things that are um you know relating to international supplies and demand um so yeah well you know it's it, i would say it's tricky right I, I think a lot of people and maybe some people maybe maybe not a lot of our listeners but i know some people have this idea that well the fed lowers interest rates the prime rate and and you know things kind of snap into place and but there's been a lot of research on this and there's this sort of a there's a considerable lag between the fed lowering rates and those sort of having a broader effect in the economy, which makes sense if you think about it, because, you know, we, we have a consumer spending right. driven economy. And so it takes time. And we're talking like uh, a year or more in many cases. And so not only do you deal with that enormous lag, you also deal with the fact that the Fed is working with lagging indicators, right? And so this is it, this is a really sort of tricky thing. And that's why when back when the Fed and, and a lot of other people, not Jay, but a lot of other people thought that this was potentially a transitory sort of thing, the Fed didn't want to crank up interest rates and potentially cause, you know, a slow, uh, unnecessary slowdown of the economy a year from then to deal with a problem that might have actually gone away on its own. So it's, you know, it's a, uh, it's a, it's a tough thing to, it's a tough thing to do, which is why the Fed is oftentimes so uh, conservative, I guess I would say, in taking any sort of, uh, any sort of action at all, really, in many cases. You should have listened, Jerome. Well, you know, and, and again, it's, I think there was good reason for people to think that some of this was transitory, in part, you know, for two things. Number one, I don't think anyone, well, not anyone, but there were a lot of people who know a lot about this stuff who I think are surprised at the incredible 
persistence and mutability and variability of COVID, right? We had original COVID, then all of a sudden we hit with Delta and then Omicron and its variants. And, you know, this has been a very unpredictable sort of thing, right? And so that's hard to estimate. And then, of course, there's Russia's war, disastrous war in Ukraine. And you add all that stuff together and the environment is just incredibly uncertain. I think. And that's what makes it even harder to act in, in sort of any sort of a rational, calculated way. So I'm going to throw out, and this is my just general conservative bit about why we, we shouldn't blindly trust experts or always trust experts, is that the experts seem so often to be surprised. They were shocked and surprised in, in 2008 um, by the uh, uh, Great Recession. They were shocked by the you know internet bubble bursting. Um, now they're shocked and surprised by inflation. All these very smart people um, uh, who who assured us that it's transitory, who were telling us, uh, oh, "Look, you you idiots, you don't understand modern modern monetary policy. Um, we can keep pumping money into the the economy indefinitely." Um, and to some extent, COVID, if anything, I would say delayed inflation. Right? Part of the in- inflation was the comeback from COVID, yeah. Uh, that all of a sudden now we have one all kinds of money that's been pumped into the economy, uh, both both uh, from fiscal policy and and monetary policy, um, and and second we've got this pent up demand, and and third we've got nowhere for it to go, um, because so, of supply I mean, to chain. Me, to me, that was sort and, yeah. of entirely predictable. Uh, as well, was the war in Russia. Well, right? hold on. I mean, well, look, we're the, talking about the war in Russia a year before it happened. Well, I, I doesn't, let me back up. I, I think once again, I agree with you to to a point when then then uh, I got off the train and you went on to the next stop. So, all right, here's the point to which I agree with you. I, I think it's absolutely important to recognize, and enough people don't recognize that the world is an insanely complex place. And if you take even the advice and the predictions of experts as gospel truth, you are oftentimes going to be disappointed in part or in whole. Just because even the smartest people in the world, we're talking about enormously complex system. And I also agree that experts oftentimes overestimate the extent of their uh, expertise, their ability to protect predict the future. There's been a lot of, there's actually been some interesting work done on how good experts are predicting these things and, you know, not all that great. So yes, absolutely. But that's where, that's where you and I agree. But then all of a sudden you went off into, and if people just would have listened to me, because this was common sense. (laughs) And I'm like, well, wait a second here. Um, I'm not not saying that you should have listened to me, but I'm, I'm saying from where, from where I sit, right. From just a common sense Standpoint. Well, let's let's talk about from, what common sense basic, means. From uh, that's, basic economics one hundred and one standpoint. See, this is this is where I get off the train because you're, it seems like you're making an argument that all of these people don't understand basic economics, and if we just use common sense, that's I think that's even a worse error. See, you're I, I think you're overcorrecting. It's one thing to say, hey, we need to we need to have a bit of caution before blindly acting. And throwing all of our, you know, eggs in one basket based on expert consensus. Absolutely. But it's another thing to say, hey, we should just do what seems to make sense on the surface because non-expert opinion is better than expert opinion. That's just not the case. No, no, the case me, is, let me, let me finish. Let me, the let me case is it, let me that. Let me phrase it this way. Okay. Let me phrase it this way. 
when the expert opinion seems to be blatantly counterintuitive, uh, it it ought to come in for particular scrutiny. Absolutely. But I don't and think that this, was the case. In here. this case, we had a situation where the, the government had for some time been printing money hand over fist uh, and increased that even more so in the pandemic. <clears throat> um, also, we had a situation where the government started giving all sorts of, of cash aid. Uh, and then also not only cash aid, but then um, uh, deferrals on student loans, uh, deferrals on rent, uh, all these other all these other uh, policy actions that put more cash into the economy. And you can say, listen, that was that was justified at the time. It was an emergency and so forth. Um, the government then pumped even more money into the economy. And and, and all the while, the experts are saying, well, no, I don't think I don't see inflation uh, coming back. Um, to to me the the very intuitive um you know response and this this is sort of a uh look i'm not saying experts are no nothings or you just got to you know go with go with what the common man on the street says who who may not know anything but I, i'm i'm saying you don't need a weatherman to tell which way the wind blows well let me let me i, and when, I see when what the you're wind saying is blowing one direction it and and the experts say no 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 don't worry about it I think there ought to be particular scrutiny of of those experts. Well, well let's let's that's, let's that's talk let's talk about what we mean by experts, I guess, because this idea that everyone said this is just not not the case. It's absolutely the case. I'm thinking Jerome Powell, the head of the Federal well, Reserve. Well, let me let me again. He's an expert. Yes, he is an expert. But the idea that Paul Krugman. Yes. What about Larry Summers? Would you say he's an expert? I would. I okay, would. and you want you know, I'm sure that Larry Summers was was voiced significant concerns with all of this and has been for years, right? Yeah, but he was so, in the substantial he was in the substantial minority. Okay, now would would you and, say and also, that let me let me let me finish also, here. Let me finish. Yeah, he's also the the disgraced Larry Summers, but Yeah, go ahead. Let, let me finish. So, would you say that there are economic experts at uh I don't know, the American Enterprise Institute? Absolutely. And at the Cato Foundation. That's where the good ones are. And at the Heritage Foundation. Right. Yes. So what I'm saying is that there was there were a significant number of economists who happened to not be not control the levers of the economy because they're from the party not in power who who voiced concerns. There were plenty of members of Congress who said, hey, I think we are spending too much. Now, there were, as you pointed out, there were political realities. And at, at the time, it seemed like, well, we need to do everything we can to keep people kind of whole and safe physically. And if there's inflation, well, let's hope that doesn't happen. So what I'm saying is that uh, I guess I'm, I'm defending, uh, I'm saying that expert opinion, such as it is, was not, was not uh, monolithic, was not uniform on this. And it turned out that, yes, the experts, I would say, who would broadly speaking, represent the right or conservative, uh, Larry Summers is not exactly a man of the right, but more conservative policy, economically, I have been proven right on this. And that doesn't include Jerome Powell, for instance, and other folks that you mentioned. But that does not necessarily mean, you know, I think you alluded to that at the time that that was a that was a, a horrific decision because, uh, again, we're in the midst of a crisis. And, and, you know, what do you do to make sure that people can remain whole without physically endangering themselves right and so well but it's it's also at different points in the crisis right sure. uh, I, I i think i'm pretty much on record uh saying look what we did in in march and april of, of 2020 uh was justified 
what we were doing in January of 2021 less so. Um, and, and, proposals yeah. that are, are floating now even even more less, sure. less so. Absolutely. And I think there's I, well, and there are certainly disagreements as to the extent to which federal spending has contributed to this. But the best data I've been able to find, and it suggests that yeah, well, there there were the U.S. response, which was much more, uh, uh, you know, I might say generous, you might say profligate, whatever. Then in many other uh, rich countries, has actually contributed to more problems down the line in terms of inflation. Certainly, now again, that, that's not the only that's not the only concern. But yeah, looking back, I would say it would have been better if we had, especially later on, spent less. Right. So, yeah. and, and I, and I think this is, you know, this is obviously, uh, as you, you, you mentioned, I think modern monetary theory, I, I think, you know, it's certainly this is, this has been a blow to that, uh, to that sort of belief system, if you will. You'd hope. Yeah. You'd hope it. Well, there, there were always, I, I don't know. There are people who, you know, believe in all kinds of, you know, crazy fictions, modern, modern monetary theory, uh, free markets, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, they, they kind of take it too far and, uh, yeah, they are blinded by their own ideology. But, you know, and, and my concern is that a, a lot of these things are not just, well, are kind of structural things, right? I mean, we don't know how long COVID's going to go on for, but it has a scary ability to mutate. And these supply chain issues could stretch on for, a while yet. And I think, you know, when you look at the, when you look at the leading, uh, the leading factors in this inflation, right? Okay. The gas price is going down. Maybe that helps. And I think that is going to help out a whole lot actually. And yeah, that has an effect on other prices. Yeah. Especially since they, they were so, there was so much the leading thing. And so I would expect to see that level. I would be surprised, not that I'm an expert, but I would be surprised if that level wasn't actually lower next month. But even so, that aside, when you're dealing with, for instance, the two other issues, food and shelter, right? Well, with food, we know that the Russia-Ukraine thing is not going anywhere. And that is a that is a major factor. Uh, and not only that, but we have climate issues that are causing droughts and other conditions. And, and, and as more and more people are interested or are, are, are wealthier and are interested in having more uh, animal product, heavy diets, that that obviously contributes to that because animal feed and so forth require more resources. And so you get kind of a contraction in supply compared to demand. And there's also the housing element when we know that ever since the 2008 crisis, we've had a major housing shortage in this because, of course, a bunch of builders who did too much ended up going out of business. And we are severely underbuilt, especially in that kind of affordable housing uh, level. And that's not the sort of thing that just, you know, corrects itself immediately. So we're dealing with some pretty important longer term structural factors that I'm concerned we're not doing enough to address if we really want to deal with this issue of, you know, too much money chasing too few goods, right? We want to be able to fix that. And I'm concerned that we're not doing enough on those lines. I, I don't know what your take is on that. Yeah, no, I think you just kind of made the argument for supply side economics. But well, I, I don't know that I did that, but that's maybe another uh, another conversation. So, so yeah. All right. Uh, well, you know, before we move on to the supporters exclusive segment of the show, I just want to remind everyone quickly that if you are not listening to When the People Decide, that podcast, you are 
you're really missing out. Uh, last week, I was mowing the lawn. I listened to this uh, great story about Katie Faye's a regular person, uh, not rich, not politically corrected in Michigan. She was really bummed out at gerrymandering interstate. And she said, well, why don't we change that? And she started this grassroots campaign, led to a ballot initiative, resulted in Michigan actually moving to an independent redistricting commission. It's a really interesting story. And Jenna and the folks over at When the People Decide do a great job of telling it in a compelling way. And so definitely check it out if you haven't already. It's When the People Decide, and you can find it, you know, wherever you get the politics guys, I guess. So there you go. Um, and so, yeah, we are going to be moving on to our Patreon supporter segment. But before we do, just a reminder that if you would like to get all of this stuff and uh, ad-free and all that, well, you can become a Patreon supporter. Just go to patreon.com slash politics guys, or you can support us through Venmo or at politics guys, as well as through PayPal. All those support links are in the show notes and at politicsguys.com slash support. But if you'd like free access to full episodes, you're not in the position to be able to support us financially. We totally get it. Just send me an email, Mike at politicsguys.com, and I will take care of that for you be happy to do that and whether you're a supporter or not it really does help us if you can subscribe rate the show leave reviews on whatever podcast app you happen to be using and share episodes on social media thanks so much